This is the trunk. Can we call this a space cast from now? Space oh. cast. Well, I was gonna say, this is the morning surf report with, oh, what's his name? There's a guy every day in Malibu. He like, cause he's a radio DJ for the morning rush hour. Mm. So before he shows up to work, every day at like five, he does the morning surf report and posts it on Instagram, I think. I think just Instagram and Facebook maybe, but I was like, aloha, <laughs> it's the morning surf report and it is looking great today. <laughs> uh, low tide, two foot waves, this is what it looks like, because he does a video. Oh. And sometimes he gets these like locals who are there in the morning to do it for him. Mm. But, um. Nice. I forget why. I don't know. No one really does morning surf reports here, do they? Mm. I mean, there's like radio surf reports like multiple times a day. I think we like, should do one. Because what, the Bolinas had one? Yeah. Which was like uh, a blog, yeah. daily blog. It was not so much a surf report and more of like some poetry disguised as prose. <laughs> what? Poetry disguised as prose. Yeah. Isn't that just poetry disguised as poetry? Yeah, but like full sentences. No, I know. It was like a really artsy fartsy um, Bolinas style surf report. That's very nice. I was reading it the other day. And then I know in LA they do, they used to do newspaper surf reports. Bolinas has the newspaper still, a daily yeah. paper. So it's like someone will go down to the water like before the newspaper prints mm -hmm. and like type up a quick one or the night before they'll look at like all the forecasting stuff mm -hmm. this was back before the internet where uh there's a story someone was telling the story about how they had to like make basically make up so, oh i think this was uh yeah i read the story somewhere in an interview someone just like was uh in high school was assigned the surf forecast thing for like newport's daily newspaper mm -hmm. and they just made it up like, you would just, like, make up something every single day, um, and people would always write in and be like, what the hell, like, you said it would be, like, seven to eight feet, and, like, there hasn't been waves for, this like, This is how I months. feel about surf line. I think it's all made up. <laughs> no, it isn't. Because every time it's wrong. Surf line also just updated, they changed their, oh. uh, system. Like, what's the point in looking at it if it's fiction? It's not. I would say it's not wrong. Also, the big benefit of Surfline isn't just the forecast. It's like you have the camera. It's almost like the cameras are what people come for, so the, so the forecast can be wrong, and you don't have to like make it good, and yeah. people still pay, so why make it right? Um, I mean, people probably pay for a wide variety of reasons, actually, now that I think about it. I do look at the premium forecast, which is like someone wants to sit down and write hmm. based on the models and stuff. Um, you think we could just get computers to write based on the models? Yes. I think that's a that would be a very interesting use of AI. AI. Or GPT. Yeah. Something like that where it's kind of it's pretty low stakes, but if you can do it well, it's a example of It's very obvious if you can do it well. My guess is that Surfline is probably working on this right now. Yeah, but anyone could they do have, it, right? They have all the data. Yeah, I guess so. But it's I don't think you need that much 
I mean, no, you depends need, on what you're you trying to do. You need historical data. It depends on what you're trying to do, like what your goals are. What do you mean? Like if your goal is to make, if it's to have the report make people feel good. What? Then <laughs> Why is that the purpose of the surf report? I think that was one of the purposes of the two-mile surf report in Bolinas. It wasn't to give people an accurate portrayal of the surf. It was to encourage <laughs> people to go and surf or encourage people to long for the feelings <laughs> that you get when you're surfing. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, That's why I say the goals. Like, see, there could be many goals. I see what you're trying to say. Um I mean, so before, so it seems like Surfline has now taken over. They've more or less won um, the surf report wars. So it was kind of like in the internet, uh, people before would use like NOAA data mm -hmm. to like, um, you'd literally have to read like buoy data and like uh, kind of old school weather forecasting to figure out like, oh, in three weeks, it might be good over here. We should, like, plan a trip to this faraway place. Mm. Um, but then the internet made it so much easier to put all the data in one place and then kind of came up with these hobby hobbyist forecasters. So, like, this was also a thing in um, the Pacific Northwest with um, snow forecasting for skiers and snowboarders. Mm. Where, um, who's the big guy? Do you remember? He's at UW. He's, like, an atmospheric scientist. Oh, the and one that wrote about Dan Jaffe? Yeah, and he was like a pretty big celebrity because it was like for a lot of people who plan their activities around the weather, they would just kind of like tune in, check in every day, be like, oh, you know, what's happening with the forecast or what, you know, can we expect? Um, but then those people kind of became more and more specialized in terms of the techniques they used and technology and the sources of the data. Um, and then it kind of went backwards where then it just became who could like put up data the fastest so and then also in the kind of convenient format so like surfline magic seaweed um i think like windy tv as well these are like other visualization tools um and then the one that matt uses what's that the really really old school one magic seaweed no the other one. Oh, surf news network yeah surf news network that one is like classic the you know the first wave of the internet and like all this data and um, I want to compete. I think you have to figure out what you can do differently. I think the challenge now is that all this stuff has been replaced entirely by surf cameras. And Surfline has kind of cornered so the really market. People don't care about the numbers. They, if they can see the video, then they're... Yeah. Because it's like, oh, should I, the decision is, should I go surf today, right now? Yeah, so for a while, I was like, maybe someone should just make a website where you go to it and it says, should go, should not go. <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't think that's, I think that, so the problem is with this for me, um, the problem is that the audience of who's using these tools has grown like crazy and the audience that's come into surfing lately, like over the past 10 years has been entirely the, the crowd that's just like, Oh, should I just go surf now or should I not go versus I think before when you didn't have as much granular data, hmm. you had to actually think and plan your surf trips. And so I, when you talk to older surfers, they're very good about understanding actually like weather patterns and what, 
what's happening in the ocean and how to like what creates certain conditions whereas like <laughs> kook surfers today like beginners like us we're just like oh are the waves good let's go <laughs> and it's like there's no understanding or connection between what made the waves good this particular day and what caused it like you know four days before in the south pacific but that's, or a week that's before like in the north pacific the, that's not unique to surfing in that most people like they don't understand how things work today because they don't <laughs> yes. need to but i think in order if you actually wanted to become any sort of above entry level or like a high level surfer back in the 70s or 80s you had to either live really close to the water like within like 30 minutes to an hour mm -hmm. or actually study and understand like amateur atmospheric science hmm. amateur climate science or weather science um and that became i think older surfers uh more what are they called the uh, salty sailors mm -hmm. they're very into like being a good waterman or being a good sailor um being a good surfer is also understanding the weather because you're not just taming the weather like in the activity like you, oh i'm gonna pedal and be on top of the wave at this moment it's also understanding like how to get to that wave and meet the wave and where to go but i feel like people today like us were just like oh well camera the thing is because we also live very close to the water so we don't need to do those kinds of things yeah i think that's true if we didn't live close to the water and you really liked surfing then i don't know i you think you would to. probably find a way to live closer to the water then <laughs> that's easier than learning how to predict yeah. the weather Unless you really needed to live wherever you're living. Yeah, I think the other big thing, the other big motivation is when you don't live close to the water and you're planning a trip and you get skunked. And the first time you get skunked where you, like, you know, you get all your stuff together, you take the plan for the day off, and you get out to the beach after two hours of driving and the waves are flat or it's blown out or it's windy and you're like, shit. <laughs> and that makes you try to understand the next time to not do that so i don't think that would make me try to understand for the next time i think that would make me quit <laughs> well, that would make me look quit. for some other activity that i could do in this place that like i've tried to come to go surfing yeah you wouldn't you would i would like make a fire or something <laughs> get really good at making fires <laughs> like campfires yeah. or like forest fires campfires yeah anyways i think that's one of the one of the ways um, the sport, the activity has evolved, but also how technology has changed. So if you were to do something, I do think bringing back that kind of Bolina style aesthetic is valuable. Um, and I think there's a, it's like if the original old salty sailors would appreciate that, but all the new people wouldn't really, it would be, it would be new. Right? Well, I think like the, what would be interesting is the people that do appreciate that would be a very a subset of the community that i'm actually interested in engaging with yes and then that makes you think about okay what is the dynamics of the community or the crowd is it that like there's kind of a pipeline of eventually you get it's like a funnel like most the top of the funnel which is super wide is a lot of beginners or people who do it shallowly and then over time as you get more committed you get more exposure to things like the history and the tradition and the other things that aren't just like the oh i'm gonna go to the surf shop rent a board and spend a day at the beach and then not do it again for another five but years. just because you're a beginner doesn't mean you won't fall into the funnel of like the person that cares about this thing yeah 
I don't think it has to do at all with how long you've been surfing. No, I agree. I think it's just a law of numbers thing. Probably just like 5% of all people will be super weird, like hippie barbarian days readers. I don't like Barbarian Days. I've tried to read it so many times. That's another one of those things. Recently found out the Barbarian Days guy is friends with the girl that was in the competition with Russell. Like, she's really good friends with him. He lives here. She writes for the Star Advertising. Yeah, he lived in Kahala Hmm. uh, in his childhood. But the reason why I would want to build a thing like that is because I've been thinking about this more because... A few months ago, you were like, the cool thing about Trunk that could be cool is the social element. Mm-hmm. And more and more, I've been, mm, I've been appreciating the strangers that I know on the internet more than the people that I personally know on the internet. So what does that mean? Which means that I think... Like, I don't need another tool to help me communicate with the people I already know. I already communicate with them fine. I need a tool to help me find more people that I don't know so I can communicate with those those people in ways that I cannot communicate with the people I already know. Mm. And I think that's, like, one of the things that I think you often said and I often said about experiment is... For any idea out there in the world, there is an audience that wants to engage in some esoteric niche thing. But the problem is, it's really hard to find those people. Well, it's not just hard. So there is coordination. I guess coordination costs is a a big net. Um, It's hard to find slash discover or find those people like where they're meeting. The other thing is, and I think what Experiment was addressing is, it's hard to create that meeting point which is to say like you have a hunch in your head that oh there's 10 other people out there who are probably interested in this very particular question but how do you create the bat signal to like gather them into the single place an experiment was actually like a literal way to do that because oftentimes the biggest barrier is like funding like material costs Mm -hmm. for doing the, the project um or sometimes it was like, you know, it's a little bit carp for a carrot and horse and which one go- comes first and maybe they um, happen separately or they happen together. Um, but I think there are other things like funding that are obstacles towards um, you might not realize you're interested in this esoteric thing until it's in front of you or mm-hmm. until it's possible to be discovered. And then once it's an option, then it's very easy to then tap into your monkey brain with ADD and just be like, oh, okay, I'm going to dive into this world. And then I want to meet the characters that inhabit this world. And then I'm going to decide, oh, actually, this is interesting enough for me where I want to commit myself towards this world of either contributing or being a participant or observing how it changes over time. And then that's how, and then suddenly it becomes, oh, okay, now this thing is part of my identity, which is like, my uh, Bolinas morning surf report over coffee is like a part of who I am and how I identify and what brings me value or joy or frustration or Mm -hmm. learning Um, but I think at that point the world has that world that's emerged or the world that you discovered or stumbled upon has 
proven or shown to you that it's dynamic and that it's changing and that it's not just like five books. It's five books. Once you read the five books, the world is over. I think that is like not that experiment doesn't serve that because that's not um, research. I would say it's just like I will. I would say it is research if then those five books leads towards some conclusion or leads towards another question. But I think there's a very clear bias of what experiment um, is useful for, is most useful for, like the kinds of audiences or projects that it's um, that find it useful. And this is a long rant. Like the thing about the five books is that the reason why the five books aren't useful is because the five they're static things. Mm-hmm. Like the books don't change. You can't contribute to the book. And even if you do generate ideas from reading the book, no one can see those things. But if other people could see them, and they could respond to them, or they could react to them, then suddenly you're getting the, it's not the five books, but it's like, the ideas that came from the humans that read the five books. Yeah, suddenly it's no has nothing to do with the content. It's then just about how the participants engage with the content, and those kinds of the rules or pra- habits or practices of that community. And then, um, not that I would say that that's what's valuable in terms of like profit capture, but I would say that's what's valuable in terms of the relationships that are built between the pe- between the participants. Um, and then if that thing can then, like, through the community or the network that's created of, say, you have, like, one person who steps up to become, like, the leader of the project, and you have 10 other people that are delegates, and then you have 50 other people that are just, like, kind of commenters, and if that, what, 80 people you have then, can then start to spin off things that are also valuable in other ways, not just valuable in, like, the hard-to-measure ways, but maybe valuable in the, um, commodity or monetizable ways right like they start producing things you can sell on etsy or they start producing things that can then either go back towards the community or reinvest so two days ago i got distracted accidentally looking at mechanical keyboards Mm -hmm. and this is such a clusterfuck part of me was so like um okay the other thing that i do actually want to talk i have a lot to say about this the other thing that put me on this thread was this surfing thing that I want to talk about. But let me just say, mechanical keyboards, really fucking complex, confusing world. Like, 10 years ago, I bought a mechanical keyboard once because it was like, oh, gamers like the way it sounds when you just go click, 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 and you're playing games. And then compared to, like, you know, laptop computer keyboards, which suck, everyone was like, oh, mechanical keyboards might be interesting. You have, like, three different options for switches in terms of how the switch sounds when you, like, press it. Like, maybe it'll go faster, maybe it'll make it loud clicking noise now there's like 50 switch types and they all come in different colors of like cherry reds or blues or banana or mint or milkshake and like there's milkshake silent and then there's gateron brown which is tactile or clicky and then all the different keyboard frames have like so many different sizes like for me it was um it created this immediate reaction of like holy shit how did this community which had a lot of energy and passion and interest of just like this niche. That is a research thing. community, is it not? It is, definitely. It is a research community. But it's mainly, for me, it was very obvious that it's like kind of just consumerism wrapped up in like 
technology stuff with like aesthetics because um, that's what a lot of the keyboard community is um, but the way that it's just sprawled in every possible direction of how to become more efficient or how to become more aesthetic all of it so that these are things that you can buy and acquire for yourself there's very much kind of this capitalistic um, race to the bottom feeling about it in terms of like how much the market can grow and it's also interesting the flip side of it is that now there, there's all of these like there's a forum for specifically for people to help design new parts of the keyboard so like new keycaps with like different colors and new switches and there's a whole community and now pipeline that's built up where you can do it's followed a lot of the online community around um streetwear which which was like early 2000s of like these things called drops so one of the biggest sites um for streetwear was called like mass drop which is also like headphones and stuff they've now turned into just drop.com and they just do keyboards and headphones which is crazy so it's like a new keyboard designed by this one guy who's really big on the forum um they'll do an interest check to see how many people are like interested in buying it and then they'll do a crowdfunding round to like do the production because they're using some new like abs plastic versus some other kind of plastic which makes it so the keys don't get shiny when the oil stick to it. it's like insane and then um from there there's like if it sells well enough it'll go to the store so there's like a whole fleshed out pipeline now to um where they can monetize <laughs> this like the activity in the research community mm. um and i would say it feels a lot like other online communities where it starts with kind of a segment of people who are passionate in the maybe the art side of it, but then as it grows, um, others latch onto it for the capitalistic nature, mm -hmm. the consumerist nature, which is how can I spend money to acquire this thing that I can incorporate into my identity? So coolness, they can coolness. buy coolness. So for keyboards, it's purely aesthetic vibes. Right, it's like. But the I have a keyboard. thing about keyboards <laughs> is like, you use it at your home office and no one sees it. No, so actually the keyboard communities, even Drop.com, they have like a whole content platform where people can take photos of their setup. So it's all about setups, which is like, your desk, your screen, your speakers, your camera, and everything is laid out like in a minimalistic, cool aesthetic vibe, you know, and it's all about showing off. Um, your you know your maximum setup, and then people say, "Oh, I really love your vibe, your setup. Like this is great. This keyboard's awesome, and like I want to replicate this. I want to become this." And that's you see this. this I'm not saying anything new. Like so this, is this like happens everywhere. What hat you're wearing? <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's fashion. It is absolutely fashion, with technical aspects. And also, fashion now is very much like this because I'm also plugged into fashion TikTok, where I've been watching a lot of this. Um, really great content by this Chinese TikToker who walks around London interviewing people who are wearing like expensive clothing. And she'll walk up to them and she'll be like, "Oh, what are you wearing today? I really love your outfit." And they be like, "Oh, thank you. I thrifted this, and this is um, Gucci, and this is Louis Vuitton, and this was six hundred dollars." And all of it is just insanely expensive, and it's just like people being excited about how much money they spent. <laughs> I used to be able to tell you the price of all the clothes that I was wearing any given day. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you say that when you were in that mindset, 
something had was like an alien sucker on your brain? It seemed like a valuable thing for me because I knew at any given time I could sell these items yeah. and return cash. Yeah. So it, it. Because I was cash poor. Yeah. A student. Um, but also because it was constantly changing and it was stuff for you to like follow yeah. and learn about. I don't know if it was constantly, it was just a way to make money. A way to know that like instead of putting money in the bank, I could put money into these things, I could wear them. And then if I needed money, I could trade it out. Yeah. So um, it was like a bank. I would say that's common. I, I still mean, do that with some things that I we I would say today. I do that also with like rum. <laughs> like I could tell you the price of every rum right now. But I don't think that's a healthy way to, like, approach life. So I was going to say, but do you think it's, like, kind of like an, almost like a lens that you see the world through? Yeah. Because once, once you, you see wear that, that hat. Yeah. Once you know your hat is $200, then you're wondering. You know what I'm saying? Put. This is a mode. It's like wearing a hat. Like, once you put on the hat, you can't really take it off. Or, sorry, yeah. I guess say it's like glasses. Yeah. It's like, it's an ideological lens. Yeah. In a way. I think so. But I don't think it's something that people, like choose to do it's almost like you get into that mode out of necessity or i would say sometimes um i don't think it's always out of necessity because i understand what you're saying which is like if you're a broke student then it's an activity you can do i would say sometimes people do it unknowingly yeah, and I think I would people say don't of, know that they're doing yeah. it, but the reason they started doing it often comes from, like, a need. I would agree. I would say sometimes it's just a need to, like, maximize. It's like, I have $100 to spend, and there's 50 choices I can make. I need to make sure that I make the best choice with my limited resources. And then that, that gets you on the wire cutter path, which is, how do I, now that information is everywhere, how do I amass as much information as possible so I can use it do to my advantage? Do you understand why, like, whenever you ask me this question of, like, what is the best burrito in San Francisco? <laughs> this is yes. the reason why I'm not interested in engaging, <laughs> is because you ultimately will go down this funnel into this this path Which is that's, like, not, justify in, not interesting burrito choices. or, like, not, not, like... You're not there interested are lots in of, burrito fandom? There are lots of other interesting things in the world to do. Then feel really good about the burrito you're eating. Then, like, pick the metrics that you think are best and then find the ones that match those metrics to say this thing is the best. I mean, at the end of the day, I agree with you. But I'm also saying I agree with you because I have exhibited this pattern. And I think it's a very common pattern for today's generation. But what, what I do want to say is I think keyboards and dogs and surfboards are all in the same category for me. Everything, yeah. No, in that oh. the way that I treat them in relationship to me, I want to be the same. <laughs> in that I do want a mechanical keyboard. Yeah. I want the mechanical keyboard to choose me. I do <laughs> want a dog. I, do, I want it to show up on the doorstep. I do want a new surfboard. But I want it to be a meant-to-be experience. Because it's too oh, overwhelming so you're as just, a... I feel like the only thing you're saying is it explicitly has to be ambiguous. Yes. And it has to be because of some <laughs> random stars aligning of some 
people that I happen to know happen to have a keyboard laying around and then I happen to need one like and the, then I get one and then I love it so it's almost like the chance is more meaningful to you than any sort of logical I don't want the logic choice because no matter how much how many ways we calculate the thing with how many abacuses it's always going to be not good enough once you're in the trap doesn't matter what metrics we look at. I'm never going to feel like it's enough. Yeah. So um, this was the thing that got me onto this side tangent, which was uh, on Reddit. Someone posted this very funny thing on the surfing subreddit. The surfing subreddit is fantastic. It's like the Every most... time I go there, I like never find anything interesting. Because um, it's all shitheads. It's all sarcastic burnouts who like love Do shitting Do those people, people even surf? Um... I think most probably do. So it's I would say it's like 50% beginners who are like, what board should I get? And that's like 90% of the content. And then it's 50% people who just like comment really, really funny, sarcastic, ironic, hateful stuff. Being like, you're a beginner, you suck, surf more. That's like 90% of their comments. Um, okay. Which is usually the answer. I mean, that is good People advice. are always like, oh, I was really good at snowboarding and I skateboarded a few times. How long will it take me to surf? And then... Some beginners like, oh, you'll pick it up because, um, you know, you, you're maybe athletic. And then everyone, all the experienced surfers would be like, snowboarding is nothing like surfing. Like, you're a fucking beginner. It's going to take you 10 years to get to the point where you feel like you don't suck. <laughs> Which is the truth. I don't think that's the truth. I think it's like surfing is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult, but it doesn't take everyone 10 years. Well, you either have to be born into it, like, surfing as a child, <laughs> or you have to be able to surf, like... Every a lot. day. Yeah. Yeah. If you can surf every day, then it will not take you 10 years. Yes. But most people don't because but they if like you're, weekend. You can surf every day, but you don't know what to improve. It could take you 10 years. Yes. Well, let's just say there are plenty of surfers who've surfed for 10 years and they still suck. Yes. <laughs> I can confirm. <laughs> so, um, anyways, this guy posted a thread, like the super long, like, recap, like a typical wire cutter style recap yeah. of his experience at a wave pool. So he rented out, a, or he was at a wave pool for three days, and he was like, here's how I went from beginner to intermediate beginner after four days in a wave pool and all everything that I learned and tips for you in case you try to do it. And he wrote this huge dissertation, and then everyone just, like, opened the floodgates and shit on him. <laughs> just being like, what the hell is this? Like, first of all, you're in wave pools with the ocean. Like, what the fuck is it, intermediate beginner or early advanced beginner? Because there's all these, like segmentations people now create to make themselves feel better about it uh, and he and then he posted like, like a photo of himself surfing on it's it it's like when like, people are like are you raising a seed round or yes, a pre-seed yes, 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 or a exactly. series a pre whatever um it's like if you can label it or attach a label to it then it further puts you on the hat the lens of like you know um and the other big thing is like wave pools cost a lot of money right and mm-hmm. it some people kind of see it as a shortcut towards like getting better because it's true if you just do repetitions you will improve but you're only doing repetitions on a thing that isn't necessarily realistic and like doesn't help you translate into the real world because he was like i did this wave pool thing because i'm gonna go to portugal and surf and then people are like this is what portugal looks like this week and it's like huge macking 20 foot (laughs) waves and he's like oh yeah i'm probably gonna go to a sheltered spot (laughs) and like um but it was funny just because I feel like uh, experienced surfers or older surfers are always very, very, um, they keep it real. 
Like with, you have no like tolerance for this yeah. kind of no filter. This kind of behavior and very quick to call out like you suck, you're a beginner, like you think way you have too big of an ego, you think too big, too much of yourself. Um, because I think also for a lot of those experienced people, they were that beginner at one point and they felt the same way. And they're like, oh, I'm fantastic now. And they watch a clip of themselves and like, oh God, that was so bad. Hmm. Um, so the that put me on this track because I think it brought up the same feelings of like, everyone wants to buy the right surfboard so that you can feel really good about, you know, yourself, but whatever equipment you use doesn't necessarily make you better. Mm. I guess whenever you have more information about a thing, there's always a good part of it and a bad part of it, and they come together all at once. Like, Jeff Huang, he just posted, like, him and his students had collected... Uh, salary data on PhD students from all the CS departments over the last like many years and that data is extremely important for somebody to know if they're thinking about applying to a PhD program yes and when you don't know if somebody knows that data and somebody else doesn't know that data like what you're walking into is like it's just like a drastically different experience and also it's like if you're born into the world where you didn't have the data and then you you witness the transition of that data becoming available versus you're like a lot of zoomers today you're born into the world where the data was the default where that information was the default and then you don't have to not like struggle and like walk uphill both ways but it's like um but it doesn't matter if you're born into a world where a lot of data is the default there's always going to be missing data and wherever there's missing data and there's a way to like take advantage of that you're going to see people take advantage of it so you still have to go seek that data, even if you started with like way more data than the person 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, definitely data is not like a pure advantage, always. Um, depends on the field, depends on like the dynamic. And if you get overwhelmed by the data, you also are not in a good place either. Yeah, or if you're like you and you just ignore the data. Yeah. No, I don't ignore the data. I use my friends to digest the data for me. Because why do three people have to digest the data when only one person can? I don't know. Maybe what we should just do is just add a gate. A gate to what? All the data. Like, you shouldn't receive the data until you're ready. But who determines if you're ready? I I think there is a gate right now. It's like, there is a lot of data out there that is more expensive to get to because you have to look for it. I'm not even saying expensive. I'm just saying you're not allowed. No, I'm saying that (laughs) it's more expensive being that it's prohibitive. It will take you a prohibitively long time to find it. So basically you're not allowed unless you have the time or the willingness. No, it is true. And I think, but what you're describing there um, is also wrapped up in a lot of other biases. You're a journalist and you're white, then it's easy to get, you know, FOIA yeah. approvals versus if That's you're why I'd say, a foreign journalist. I think so, like yeah. Jeff releasing that data is really important is because the people that have access to the data all probably look the same and the people that don't have access to that data they're not able to, I guess, get ahead in the system because they don't have access to the data. So data itself just the nature of its release can either continue um, 
the status quo or not. I think if you don't release the data, the status quo will continue. So you should release the data. No, no, but if you release the data only to the people who are in the status quo, in the system, then That's it why also I think gate is perpetuates. almost always bad. No, I was thinking, like, this PhD data should be released to elementary school students who've never thought about and have no clue what a PhD is. But as soon as you tell them or you give them the data... It sets them on a different. So you're path. saying that if you're under the age of ten, you can get access, but if you're older than yeah. ten, then you cannot get access. Yeah, I don't know, something like that. I, I think an age gate is fair. Age gate is fair <laughs> because it's not something they can control. Yeah, it's something you're born into, not like it's um, not. It's. I think it's fair. Is age discrimination the most non-discriminatory? I guess if it comes to the fact of like who's allowed, what data. So uh, boil I mean, it down. Like social security. Boil money. it down to a smaller. That's true. Boil it down to a smaller thought experiment. What if it's just a community that you join, like a Slack, mm-hmm. and then the Slack has all the messages um, dis- expire or disappear after a certain amount of time. So if you've been in the group longer, you have more access to data that younger members don't have access to. Yeah, that could be cool. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of systems that do exhibit this pattern today um just on accident or unintentionally like data goes data's in paper and then suddenly the paper is lost and then now that institutional knowledge is gone mm-hmm. but um, if you happen to be around the whole time and you're 70 years old and you've kept a copy of every single thing yeah in your like put into your cereal boxes and organized on your wall then you have access to all the data yeah so um i mean i guess that's not an anti-pattern because that's probably what happens most of the time today but what if it was the opposite, where it's like, if you've been in the group longer, you have access to less of it. So it's almost like, say you join a library system, mm-hmm. but you only have 100 credits you can use. Yeah. So if you spend them, that's it. Mm-hmm. Whereas younger members who join, say the library's growing over time, mm-hmm. because they have the same number of credits, but they join on the later time where there's more information, they could benefit more. So the choices that you have over how you spend those credits... I think like as long as you have pe- multiple people in the system, if someone really wants something, they're going to find a way to get it. <sighs> kind of. I have thought about to... like these... I don't know, like... Uh, disappearing documents? Mm-hmm. Where like... When I'm looking at this web page, I can only focus on this area, right? So when I'm looking at this area, I can see that. But then when I look over here, I can only see this, and this is all blurred out as a way to um, make it so you can't actually copy the thing. What do you mean copy the thing? Like, you can't store it, or it's, it's really expensive to store it. What? Like, when I'm looking at toffee, I can only see these. Maybe if, like, when I'm hovering over like this. Oh, no. Yeah. And so I can only see the F and the E, and I can't see any of the other stuff unless I'm actually, like, reading it or looking at it. So if I wanted to... I don't know. Never mind. We could try that. That seems fucking terrible. But it also seems like... But, like, there are apps that have been running ads targeting me being like want to read faster we'll just show you three characters at a time that's true (laughs) that's the speed reading method yeah yeah which i took a class i I took a paid thing for because i thought it would help 
And my parents thought it would help me. I don't know. I think we have to keep noodling on this, and we have to figure this out, because this to me is... Figure what out? This, like, data stewardship question. Which is, if you want to promote good behaviors from the data that's information that's made available, how do you do that in a way beyond just the tools and patterns that we have today, which is like Wikipedia, available for everyone, but also anyone can edit it. There's like, that's the most unregulated, um, not unthoughtful, but like, there are probably tools or dynamics we could use that can make it You have it to make it socially unacceptable to share. To share? To like, share in mass quantities the data, or to share in a non-controlled way. The NSS has this. We have, like, so many... But that's for stuff that's, like, should be secret. Well, it's not secret. Anyone can pay $10 and have access to all of it. Or $20, whatever the membership fee is. But if anyone that was a member went in and uploaded all of that to the web, like, everyone would be mad. So it's socially unacceptable to share. But it's socially acceptable to tell that person just pay $30, which I don't understand. I yeah. think that's, like, a flawed in the, flaw the system. I mean, social pressure doesn't work for one-shot games that only works for if the person has an expectation that they have to play the game again hmm. so if it's like someone who's on a mission to end the world then if they succeed because they only need to one chance then mm-hmm. they'll do it right yeah. social pressure doesn't work um I don't know. I, we've been. I don't think this. I don't like. Why do you need to solve this problem? Won't people just self-organize in the ways in which they already behave? Yeah, and the ways they already behave suck. It's terrible. I hate the direction it's going. The trend. What is the way in which people normally behave with data stewardship? No, no, I mean, just, like, the way the internet is going in general with, like, Well, that's a bigger problem, but, like, specifically No, but I think, I think it's tied to it, which is, like, if you have these social groups, naturally, most of them want to, like, suddenly monetize. Because you put like-minded people together, values, like, naturally spring forward. But this then... is a... Is this not a side effect of the, like, like the foundations of society just like you don't have enough money so you so then that makes people value money and if they value money then they're going to find ways in which they can grow more money yes so this is what i'm i think i'm not saying we have to like explicitly counteract it but this is one of the forces that we have to balance and deal with or it's really like a force that we have the opportunity to deal with (laughs) because we happen to be in a position where like we can say, well, we have enough money and and we want to tackle this. I don't know. Like, do you really have to solve this problem? I think so. But to solve this problem is to get to the root of the problem, which is, like, give people enough money so they don't care about money. No, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think... Okay, I think that reality is going to be humanity's reality for a long time. We're not 
post-scarcity yet just because of our social political systems haven't prioritized that making that happen Mm -hmm. so barring a a global revolution where that changes that dynamic changes we will be continuing the people on the internet will i think will always participate in a free market capitalistic system Mm -hmm. so if you if that is one of the like axioms or if that's one of the assumptions that's true yeah then like like I said, how do you balance that? I don't think we have to solve it. I just think we have to balance it in a way that promotes the good behaviors that we want to promote. What is an example of a good behavior? Well, I can tell you what's a bad behavior. Okay, what's a bad behavior? Using information to exploit it for a personal gain. And what would be an example of that? I mean, like, I see it right now already on so many communities. No, give me an example. Keyboards, like... Um, Breaking into a community so that you can design a shitty keyboard that people will buy, that you make money and profit off of. Yeah. Or using connections or something so that you can make a keyboard and put it in a place that people will buy. But are they exploiting the consumer? I think in that case, they're exploiting an information gradient, right? So people maybe so who there's don't a know... like a gray area of good stuff, and as long as you're in the range. Of... No, I'm saying there's a there's a difference between someone who knows more than someone else and can use that information to exploit the people who don't know as much as them so like people selling these surfboards that they're like oh if you just cut a hole in your surfboard you're gonna get more speed and then all these people that don't know anything about surfing they're like oh i need that and then they buy it and then they realize later oh i don't need that exactly it's not that they realize later they learn later Mm, but they get the data but they could have known like it was an obvious thing they could have if they spent no if they didn't have the data it's not obvious that's the problem that's the problem with all of these but like what if these things they never find out the data and they believe it all along and they're happy then that again that's one of the forces that we have to counteract or that's one of the things you have to balance against which is um happy or willful ignorance Mm -hmm. is a negative behavior and mm-hmm. say our opinion or our belief or value is to counteract that so the opinion is that it should that products that are sold in the market should be honest um no that's not what i'm saying at all <laughs> i'm saying willful ignorance is something like um anti-vaxxers who when presented the data still choose to be anti-vaxxers um how do you as a community or as a platform as a tool counteract that so that if people are presented the data maybe they and they still choose to believe something else Mm -hmm. maybe they're presented the data in a different way or maybe they're gated off from participating in other parts of the tool or maybe there's there's other pressures that can change that but is that, that path that is that on. the job of the tool or is that the job of the community that's using the tool both but i think if you can design the tool to balance that force because that force is always going to exist like this is something that like you know facebook is a massive platform just by law of numbers once they got to a certain size that force started to impact a significant number of people it wasn't just like five people when facebook was just colleges now it's like conspiracy theories spread across hundreds of millions of people. Um, but they have to effectively counteract that, that just statistical presence. It's Facebook's responsibility. I think so. 
so the like public good. So this morning I was listening to this thing and somebody asked this kid about like his favorite tools, and he said his two favorite tools are the hammer and the sandwich. This sounds really dumb. But like. The only reason why you're attributing responsibility to Facebook is because there's a company behind it. Um, what's your point? Meaning that, like, it's not about the tool. It's about the people that are making the tool. Whereas, like, a hammer, you can't attribute responsibility because there isn't one organization making hammers. Yes, a company and a platform used by billions of people is slightly more complex than a stick with a rock at the end. But it's not the tool itself, it's the humans that are continually making the tool that you're you're saying need to be more responsible. So I think it's not correct to say that it's the tool. It's the people making the tool. I mean, uh, sure. Because sandwich guess... is a tool you could put poison in, and then I could feed it to someone, they could die. But it's not the creator of the sandwich, or like the person that first invented the sandwich that's responsible for the use of that. Unless they're still making, or they're manufacturing the sandwich for me. Yes, unless they're still inventing the sandwich. Yeah. yeah. I would rather think of it as the hammer is just a snapshot of what the hammer is evolving into. Mm-hmm. And if suddenly a hammer took a huge veer into, like, it has a buzzsaw and a laser at the end and explodes if anyone uses it, like, against someone in a racially charged attack, then I would say the tool is bad. It seems like the reason why tools like Facebook or Twitter or like these platforms become bad is because everyone has to use the same version of the tool. Um, so mean, you can't I even, like... I don't even think that's actually true. It's not true? I think they're probably serving different versions all the time. But you have no control over the tool. With a hammer, at least, you can be like, well, I'm going to cut it in half. With Facebook, you like... You don't... You don't have control over the ins and outs of the tool. You get whatever they want to serve you. Um, yeah, that's true, I would say. It's not so much the version, it's like the agreement between you and the thing you pay for. The agreement is like, you're going to give me some black box and I'm not going to ask you about it. Yeah. And then I'm going to use it and then you're going to serve it to everybody in the world. Yeah. So it's like everyone is going to eat ham and cheese sandwiches. And tomorrow we're going to put poison in the sandwich and we're not going to tell anyone. And we're going to poison you every single day a little bit until you all die. Yeah. I would say that's accurate. But doesn't it seem like the, the consumer behavior right now in 2022 is set up for the consumer not to question I mean, I think uh, consumers just didn't think it would be worth questioning. Like in the eighties and nineties, it was it, everything felt so new and innocuous that there was no way it could be turned into something. Like the internet could be turned into something that could manipulate society. And then I think now that we're aware of how, because it's at scale, like what the ethical concerns are, now people are actually doing those exercises but before i think but in like the 80s it was lack of imagination maybe when you bought stuff my understanding is that it came with a manual that told you about how the thing was put together i mean that yeah and now it just comes with it's just a, a, a stuff what do you mean just stuff? like a, a face no i'm talking about like a end user agreement it's like before you can use the ipad 
I don't think you have to click like I agree. No one reads it. Mm. And like maybe in there they say about how they will exploit your data, but no one before no one questioned that because there was no possible way to exploit the data in a negative way. Mm. Now there is. Or people would read those things. My dad read all of those agreements. I mean, he would read it, but I don't think he would understand. Yeah, but he'd feel better because he read every word. Yeah. And now people so, just okay, click, So click. maybe that's the, big, the bigger thing is people actually didn't understand Yeah. how it could be used. And then maybe someone discovered, you just make the agreement ten times longer, no one will read it. Yeah, I think this is something... I mean, one of the benefits of putting the data in the user's hands and not in the like trunk's hands is it that just removes that part of the complexity. So that's one benefit. It would be nice to not be responsible for anyone's data, but to be responsible for the tool that transfers the bits around. Yeah. I feel like that puts the organization in a much better position to focus on making a good tool. But also maybe potentially puts the organization into a very terrible, shitty spot about technical scaling. Yeah. Potentially. <laughs> and it also creates, then, an opportunity for other people to try to capitalize on making the data storing for the users when the corporation like doesn't want to do it themselves. Yeah. Which is like WordPress, right? Like, they don't want to... They just make you this framework oh, yeah, thing for convenience and then all these businesses pop up like we can host your wordpress website yeah maybe that's what and then, then eventually be. wordpress is like we can also host your wordpress website i think that's what trunk should try to be is like a provider we're not the like the piping we're not like the crucial part we're just like a host you have options because there are places you could do it yourself. You could go other other places, but like your school library. But um, there should be like convenience. So I, today there's some like banking startup that popped up, and they're saying they're like going to be all. Column. Yeah, and it yeah. just has like. On first glance, it's like oh they're gonna do something different, and then you read all the stuff, and you're like. They're doing nothing different. <laughs> They're doing everything the same. <laughs> mm. And the the part that is so um, concerning to me is that the people writing the blog post genuinely think they're doing something different. Yeah. I haven't looked into this yet, but... But it's very uh, strange. Okay, <laughs> on that note, we will end this week's surf report. Cosmic surf report. Um, any last words? Somebody please tell the universe to send a puppy to our porch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, goodbye. Goodbye.